So a couple years ago, I hit 40 years old, and man, did things change. I didn't have the same strength and vitality that I had before, and I didn't have what I wanted, and that was the ability to work out and have a blast doing it. So then the pounds started packing on. Well, thank goodness I found Chalk, C-H-O-Q, and they're helping real American men just like you maximize your masculinity by boosting your testosterone levels up to 20% over 90 days. Now, I've been taking the Chalk Vitality Stack for over a year now, and not only am I working out, I've now lost 50 pounds. So if you're ready to maximize your masculinity today, go to Chalk, C-H-O-Q.com, and use promo code Ben for a massive discount on any Chalk subscription for life. C-H-O-Q.com, code Ben, limited time offer. Subscription is cancelable at any time. Chalk.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. I'd like to take a moment and have a real heart-to-heart with you. If you're able right now, place your hand over your heart. Can you feel it? That's your heartbeat telling you that you're alive. It's the same for a preborn baby. Their heart begins to form at conception, and at just three weeks, it's already beating. At five weeks, a baby's heartbeat can be heard on ultrasound. And that's why we've partnered with Preborn, because we need to help these precious babies. Every day, Preborn's networks of clinics rescue 200 babies from abortion. When a mother with an unplanned pregnancy meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine encounter. That doubles a baby's chances at life. And by six weeks, the eyes are forming. By 10 weeks, a baby is able to suck his or her own thumb. And for just $28, you could be the difference between life or death of a child. All gifts are tax deductible, and I want you to donate. All you have to do is just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250, keyword baby. You can also donate securely at preborn.com slash verdict. That's preborn.com slash verdict or pound 250 and say the keyword baby. The Supreme Court confirmation hearings have just ended on Capitol Hill, which means that Senator Cruz has got to go do his second job, which is to come on over to the studio with us. This is an extraordinarily consequential week. This could fundamentally reshape the balance of power on the Supreme Court. And we're about to talk to a guy who sat through all 12 hours of the hearings. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. Welcome back to Verdict with Ted Cruz. I'm Michael Knowles. Senator, it occurs to me as we sit here about to discuss the Supreme Court confirmation hearings, we've got impeachment. We've had COVID quarantines. We have the Supreme Court confirmation hearings. 
with the possible exception of murder hornets, you have been at the center of just about every major story of 2020. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you've been involved in murder hornets too. I don't know. Well, uh, I, I, I will say this, this, the podcast feels reminiscent, uh, of, of the beginnings of verdict and, and, and spending all day then in the impeachment trial, now in, in the judge Barrett confirmation hearings and, and then, Recording this late in the evening, although it's only what is it nine twenty nine thirty as compared to midnight or one in the morning. So we're 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 more humane than than, than we started. But it is uh, ah, look, it's 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 part of what this podcast is all about is 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 to is to try to bring folks inside the battles real time as they're playing out in Washington, and 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 that's what we're doing right now. I think in this case too, Senator, maybe some people were watching all of the impeachment hearings. I don't think anybody has been sitting through all 12 hours of the Supreme Court confirmation hearings. And frankly, I, I think a lot of people, and I include myself in this to some degree, don't even really know how this whole process plays out. So I want to get into the specific moments and how sure. it's shaping the process. But I'd like to begin just by zooming out and, and asking, what was today what is the timeline going to look like? And is this judge going to be confirmed to the Supreme Court? So I think today was a very consequential day. Um, today, we now know Judge Barrett is going to be Justice Barrett. Uh, today was the first big day of questioning. Uh, so, so the way this is play, played out, the president made his announcement a couple of weeks ago of Judge Barrett as the nominee. Uh, we had a couple of weeks where she filled out. There's a whole elaborate questionnaire that that a Supreme Court nominee has to fill out to the Senate that that requires them to turn over um, any writings they've had, any speeches they've given. There are all these elaborate questions that any judicial nominee has to submit. And, and that takes a little bit of time to compile. Uh, and then the hearing started this week. It started yesterday. So, but yesterday was just opening statements. So everyone had a 10 minute opening statement and, and Judge Barrett had to sit there and listen to each of us talk for 10 minutes. And, and then um, she gave her opening statement and it was a very brief, it was introductory and it was introducing her family. She had her kids there. So she introduced her husband and her kids. She had, she's got six brothers and sisters. So she introduced them. Um, that was yesterday. So today is when the questioning started. And the way it worked today is every senator got 30 minutes of questioning. So it alternated Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican, 30 minutes each. And so Judge Barrett is there just answering the questions. And the reason I say today is when we know that she's going to be confirmed is because the Democrats couldn't lay a glove on her. Uh, I, I mean, they they really had there was no moment in the hearing where, where they not even scored blood, where, where they even put a nick in her. I, I think she was a fabulous witness. Um, she was calm. She was cool. She was collected. She had and has, I think, a very scholarly, a very judicial demeanor. Um, she was unflappable. And there were some moments where she could have been forgiven for, for flapping, and, and she didn't. Um, but I think every bit as revealing as the fact that they didn't lay a glove on her is for a lot of them, they didn't even really try. Hmm. Um, what I read today as is the Democrats have basically given up. They, they, they know oh. they don't have the votes. They know they're not going to stop or they don't have any substantive issue. And so they're going through the motions 
but but it actually felt today like like more than a few of the Democratic senators were basically phoning it in, like they had to they had to fill their thirty minutes, but but they didn't really believe they were going to get anywhere in, in terms of stopping the nomination. I know early on when Judge Barrett was announced as the nominee, you heard some uh, what I felt were very ugly and politically ill-advised attacks on her family and on her religion. And yep. the attacks didn't play very well. And fortunately, we're not we're not really seeing any more of those. I remember Dick Durbin, now the number two Democrat in the Senate, he came out and more or less said that all Democrats could do was slow this thing down a little bit, but ultimately they couldn't do anything to stop Barrett on the court. So if, if they're not going to lob those attacks and the attacks they're lobbing aren't working, what are they doing? What was the line of questioning that the Democrats were pursuing? So there was an irony to Durbin putting that, that message out um, because the last time Judge Barrett was up when she was nominated to the Court of Appeals, Durbin was one of the people who went after her for her faith. And, and, and he asked her then, this is three years ago, uh, if she was an Orthodox Catholic. Orthodox was the, the adjective he, he used. Now, I, I'm pretty sure that she's not a member of the Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox churches. <laughs> so I'm not – look, you're Catholic. What, what is an Orthodox Catholic other than beyond, I guess, from a – Senate Democrats perspective, someone who actually believes the stuff. I think that's what he meant by it. But I think you've hit the nail on the head. She's not Eastern Orthodox. She doesn't have one of those long beards. She is Catholic and she's Orthodox, meaning she believes what the Catholic Church believes. This would be as opposed to, say, a heterodox Catholic, such as I'm just throwing out a name here, the Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden, who says that he does not agree with the church on certain issues. So I can understand Senator Durbin's confusion. He probably doesn't know very many Orthodox Catholics. But as, as you say, I, I recall that attack did not play very well for Senator Durbin three years ago. No. And I think no. he, he probably wanted to caution his colleagues now. Well, Feinstein infamously said with regard to Judge Barrett three years ago, the dogma lives loudly in this one. And, and, and it was a moment of really I, I think contempt and religious bigotry that 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 yeah. backfired, as I'm glad it did. I'm glad the reaction was so strong. So somebody sent out the marching orders to the Democrats, don't go down the road of the attacks on faith again. And and uh, listen, for whatever reason, the Democrats, when they get talking points, they stick to them. And and so it was ordered, you're not allowed to attack her on this, and they all stayed away from it. So that's good. I mean, that... Um, I think they were nervous about the election coming up in a couple of weeks and they didn't want to tick off uh, Catholic voters or people of faith because it's it's persecuting someone, you know, maintaining the position that no one of faith can be a judge is a pretty extreme position. And it's also unconstitutional. I mean, the Constitution explicitly, the text of the Constitution prohibits a religious test for anyone serving in public office. Given that, what's interesting is they didn't even really decide to go after her record, to go after anything. The principal talking points that the Democrats are emphasizing is attacking the president, that they're just using yeah. this to say yeah. Trump, Trump bad, orange man bad. And, and it's all about uh, Obamacare. It's all about Obamacare. And their argument is um, that if Judge Barrett is confirmed, the Supreme Court will strike down Obamacare and a gazillion people will be denied health care and people with pre-existing conditions will be denied health care. And they basically are making it. It's 
you got to be impressed at the discipline that virtually every Democrat says that almost word for word. I mean, they read from their talking points. And the arguments they're making are not judicial arguments. They're not actually arguments. It's not the Supreme Court's job to decide them. Um, listen, every senator agrees we're going to protect pre-existing conditions. Every Republican agrees with that. Every Democrat agrees with that. Um, now, there are disagreements on how you protect pre-existing conditions, and, and I think Obamacare has been a, a train wreck. It's driven premiums through the roof. And, and it's very unpopular. But that is a policy question for Congress yeah. to debate. That's not the court is not going to decide what's the best system of health care. And so one of the main general election arguments the Democrats are mounting is this pre-existing conditions attack. And it was striking a number of the Democrats. They all but ignored Judge Barrett. They just had their talking yeah. points. Trump hates you and wants everyone to die. And and it. And, and, you know, Judge Barrett just kind of sat there and smiled while that, well, I mean, you know, that was not directed to her and her fitness and, and, and record to serve on the court. I thought, but I thought it was interesting how half hearted they were in going after her. They barely tried. Well, on the healthcare point, I was speaking to a fairly prominent Democrat operative during the midterms a couple of years ago. And this operative told me that basically the only winning issue for Democrats was health care and not Obamacare, by the way, just sort of broad health care reform, health care protections, right? Because the, the promises on the campaign trail are always we're going to give you a lot of free stuff and it's going to make everybody healthier and better. So they, they keep hammering that home. It's obviously much less contentious than, say, abortion or or going after somebody's faith or something to that effect. Well, you know, in 2018, Chuck Schumer dropped several several million dollars in attack ads against me in the closing week of the, my reelection campaign, and it was all pre-existing conditions. It was Ted wants yeah. to take away coverage for pre-existing conditions. Now we immediately pivoted and hit him back and said, "No, we're going to protect pre-existing conditions." And you've driven costs through the roof, and people can't afford health care. And it and it, I mean, we have always been a very data-driven operation, and the polling showed that when we counterpunched, it completely neutralized the attack. But they put hundreds of millions of dollars behind that attack nationally in 2018, and they're doing it again this cycle. Well, I want to get into those hundreds of millions of dollars because I agree with you watching. I didn't watch 12 hours of it today, but watching what I did, it did seem half-hearted. Uh, Senator Feinstein went for Roe versus Wade, that kind of flopped. I felt Kamala Harris flopped. I just felt so many of the attacks were weak. The only one that caught my interest was from your colleague, the Democrat Sheldon Whitehouse, who launched an attack at the funding of the conservative judicial movement, basically saying that dark money was behind the selection yep. of Judge Barrett. And then he didn't quite explain what that meant, but the conclusion, of course, was Barrett is an illegitimate nominee and there's no way we should confirm her. Where is all that dark money, Senator? So I, it was a fairly extraordinary so so Sheldon talked for 30 minutes. He didn't ask Judge Barrett a single question. So she just sat there while he he put on and he had these little charts he had. And it was interesting. Ben Sass later in the afternoon referred to it as a beautiful mind presentation. <laughs> but there's a reason for his presentation. So so White House has been pushing this for uh, a long time. There's a concerted effort to delegitimize the court, and that's part ah. of his narrative is okay. that he says that that secretive corporate billionaires are funding Republicans 
and the court is bought and paid for, and it's illegitimate. And this is connected to uh, their whole effort to pack the court. This is all Sheldon's objective is to delegitimize the Supreme Court. And my questioning was immediately after his, and that's usually the case in terms of the seniority. Um, I I normally go between White House and Klobuchar, and so often um, I'm off often have a res- uh, a chance to respond to White House, and then Klobuchar has discovered she gets lots of likes when she like says something nasty about me, which is uh, Amy and I actually get along <laughs> quite well, but it, but it makes it makes lefties really happy when she attacks me, so she often will chime you're, in. With you're going to totally kill her credibility now that you say that she you and she get along very well. There there go all the Facebook likes. So White House, I took the chance to really lay into his premise as, as you know, in the world of campaign finance reform, so the, and this is something Sheldon says all the time, but Democrats say all the time, is big money is behind the Republicans. It just happens to be there's a lot more big money behind Democrats, that, that if you want to know where the big money is. So if you look at, for example, in 2016, of the top 20 super PAC donors in America, do you know how many gave almost exclusively to Democrats of the top 20? 14 gave almost exclusively to Democrats. Three gave about evenly Democrat and Republican. And only two of the top 20 gave primarily to Republicans. It's overwhelmingly. And by the way, the difference in dollars in that cycle, 2016 cycle, uh, Republicans had $189 million spent supporting their elections. Democrats had $422 million. And it was, you know, and, 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 you know, Sheldon was bellowing, you know, these mysterious dark money donors, they want something for it. They want something. You don't give that kind of money for nothing. I mean, he was, he was, I was really tempted to ju- jump in and be, you know, Sheldon, they're, they're decaffeinated brands in the market that are just as tasty. Like, like just, just, just relax there, son. So just deep um, breaths, deep breaths. But look, if you look at this cycle, the Fortune 500 overwhelmingly supporting Joe Biden over Donald Trump. Wall Street, overwhelmingly supporting Joe Biden over Trump. The entire narrative that it's big corporate interests uh, supporting Republicans, it's just not right. What, you, what you've pointed to here, Senator, I think is key because I couldn't, I couldn't make sense of it. I, I knew that he was putting on a big show, but the whole time I was watching it, I thought, what is the point he's trying to make? You know, he had step one, raise a lot of money. Step two, I don't know. Step three, you have a judge on the court, but then often the judges disappoint the people who want to appoint them anyway. I just couldn't get what the point was. But what you're saying is there's no point about the money. It's simply part of a broader performance to delegitimize the court. Yes. And, and that, and it's also to say, to say the court is bought and paid for, but it's also to justify a democratic power grab and a regulation hmm of speech. And and so I use my questioning to talk quite, quite a bit about what the Democrats want to see from left-wing uh, Supreme Court justices. As you know, uh, my new book came out a couple of weeks ago, One Vote Away, How a Single Seat on the Supreme Court Can Change History. A New York Times bestseller, I believe. Is that correct? It is. And it, it was the number one bestseller in the country on Amazon. So, I mean, it really, a lot of people have been buying it. A lot of folks who listen to Verdict, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, there's a chapter in the book on Citizens United. And so my questioning today, I wanted to explain, you know, a lot of folks have heard of Citizens United, but they don't know what the case is about. They know Democrats hate it. Yeah. And and so I explain, 
Citizens United was at its heart about whether we can criticize politicians. And in particular, so what happened, Citizens United is a small nonprofit organization based in D.C. They made a movie that was critical of Hillary Clinton. And the Obama Justice Department went after them and wanted to be able to fine them for daring to criticize Hillary Clinton in a movie. And the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And, and there was one exchange at the oral argument, Michael, that was really chilling, where Justice Sam Alito asked the lawyer for the Obama Justice Department, said, under your theory of the case, can the government ban books? And the Obama Justice Department lawyer said, yes, yes, the government can ban books if they're critical of a politician. And, and ultimately, the court uh, struck that down 5-4. But there were four justices ready to say that the government can ban movies and the government can ban books. And it's what I tried to do in, in, in the book, One Vote Away, is every chapter emphasizes, look, we had four votes to say the government, never mind what the First Amendment says, never mind free speech, the government has the power to ban movies or books if they don't like the content of them. That that's really terrifying, and that's what White House and the other Democrats were trying to build the predicate for. They want to be in charge, frankly, of silencing you, of silencing me, of silencing anyone who says something they disagree with. Before we get to mailbag, I do want to get to a mailbag question. I do have to ask this though, Senator. I know. We had all been joking on the right that, that the Democrats were going to pull a Kavanaugh on Judge Barrett, that they were going to accuse her of sexual harassment or something like that. And then, uh, tell me I'm crazy. Tell me I misheard it while I was watching today. Did Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii actually ask Judge Barrett if she had sexually harassed anybody? Since you became a legal adult, have you ever made unwanted requests for sexual favors or committed any verbal or physical harassment or assault of a sexual nature? No, Senator Hirono. Have you ever faced discipline or entered into a settlement related to this kind of conduct? No, Senator. <laughs> so she did, and, and I will admit it was one of the most uh, incongruous moments, like if you were to pick perhaps the least likely person on planet Earth to sexually harass someone. It may well be Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Um, I will say in, in Maisie Hirono's defense, and I don't often come to Maisie's defense, um, she consistently asked that question of every nominee before her, and she's done that hmm. since she got elected. And, and, and so it's, if you're nominated to be a judge, if you're nominated to be in anything where Maisie is going to be on the committee confirming you, she will ask that same question. Um, and, and I actually respect that she asked that. I mean, I think it, it it certainly caused a lot of nominees to think twice about, OK, how are they going to answer it? And uh, look, I think it's a reasonable thing for the Senate to ask. And and I think it's fine that she applies it even handedly and consistently. I think it's actually a good thing that she applies it to everyone. Well, a, a very fine, kind word to say about Senator Hirono, and I think we're all very pleased that Judge Barrett was able to answer that very quickly. <laughs> they moved on. Before we go, we've only got a couple minutes left. I do want to get to a couple mailbag questions. This first one is from, I, I promise you this is not my account. 
I think it's a, a listener of Verdict. The account is Verdict Sir Knowles, commander of the British Empire. Not me. What would happen if the Senate majority just refused to fill a Supreme Court vacancy for an extended period of time? So not a few months of a campaign, but let's say two years or three years. Now, look, the seat would remain vacant. And, you know, it does seem we're moving in that direction where I am not sure we will see a Senate filling Supreme Court seats for the opposite party's president. And it's just judicial nominees. If, for example, we started next year with, um, let's suppose Trump won and Schumer took the Senate. I think the odds are pretty high that that they might not even fill any court of appeals uh, judge seats. At a minimum, if you had the Senate and the president of opposing parties, there would have to be major compromise on the nominee to get someone through because I think it has become such a partisan divide in terms of what people are looking for in, in judges that I think both parties right now um, – would be hesitant to, although to be fair, um, Republicans have demonstrated a lot more willingness to confirm Democratic nominees yeah. uh, than vice versa. I, I remember, I think it was Justice Kennedy, but as recently as Justice Kennedy was confirmed unanimously. Uh, Justice Ginsburg was confirmed overwhelmingly. Now it seems that that all of these are the or the biggest battleground of all. Well, look, and Sotomayor and Kagan. So both of Obama's appointees, there were a number of Republicans that voted to confirm them. So there yeah. were many more Republicans. I forget. I wasn't there for Sotomayor and Kagan, but there. So Lindsey Graham voted to confirm both of them. Uh, you remember mm -hmm. when he got Lindsey got so mad at the Kavanaugh thing, and and he kind of blew up and had sort of the viral moment. In fact, I told you when Lindsey did that, my mom texted me and said, "Okay, I love Lindsey Graham now." <laughs> <laughs> um, that was in the Kavanaugh hearing and, and it, right. and by the way, my mom is, is quite conservative. And I think it's fair to say she did not previously love Lindsay. And, and so his, the passion with which he unloaded, but one of the things he said there is he said he voted to confirm both Sotomayor and Kagan and the Democrats had none of that reciprocity, uh, for Trump's right. nominee. One last question before we go. I know this is on a lot of people's minds because they keep asking me about it. This is from Cole. Cole is a poli-sci student in Wisconsin. What is the difference between originalism and textualism? We hear these terms used yeah. as if they are synonyms, but they're not synonyms, right? So they're not. And the simplest difference is originalism refers to the Constitution and textualism refers to statutes, which are federal laws passed by Congress, but it's not the Constitution. So let's unpack that a little bit. But that's the simplest way to think about it. So originalism is how do you go about understanding um, the, the terms of the Constitution? And originalism is you should understand the terms based on the original public meaning, not what the the framers were thinking in their heads, not their subjective not the intentions. Correct. Uh, so let's take, for example, the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms. The, the operative language of the Second Amendment is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And if you look at Justice Scalia's opinion in Heller, which is the landmark Second Amendment case, it has a great deal of analysis on what the phrase the right of the people 
was understood by the the American people when when the Constitution and specifically the Bill of Rights, the Second Amendment was ratified. So in 1791, what that and the right of the people, it turns out, is a term of art. Um, it's used elsewhere in in the Bill of Rights. It's used the right of the people peaceably to assemble. So that is clearly an individual right there. It's also used. That's in the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, uh, the right of the people to be secure from unreasonable searches and seizures. So. One of the things Scalia walked through is the right of the people who is a term of art that always referred to an individual right, something that you as an individual can claim. Um, and what keep and bear arms means, not what James Madison was thinking, but what the American people, when, when it was ratified, understood it to be. That's originalism. Textualism is how you interpret a statute, um, a, a federal law. And and the principle is it, it's actually it has similarities in that it is again uh, the plain plain meaning of the language based on the the public what was understood what a reasonably infer, informed observer would understood the language to be. Now there's some potential tension between the two, and actually some of the very last questioning today was from. Uh, Senator John Kennedy, Kennedy, a Republican, who got into some of the tension on it. And it's interesting, you know, Kennedy's a very smart guy. He kind of plays sort of like a Matlock country lawyer, but he's uh, he, he's got some real gray, gray matter. And, and I think he was enjoying pushing Judge Barrett. He was having he was he was like a, a pig and slop. He was having so much fun kind of just pushing her on this. There is some con- arguable tension in that textualism avoids relying on what's called legislative history. And to understand that, some of it is you have to go back to how courts used to interpret statutes. If you go back to the 1960s, the 1970s, um, there were decisions that would start with, they'd basically ignore the language of the law. They'd ignore the text of the statute and they'd say, well, here was the legislative intent. Here's what Senator so-and-so said on the floor he, he wanted to do, so that's what the statute's trying to do. Or here's what this committee report said they were trying to do. By the way, committee reports are often written by staffers who are never elected, and they'll put things in committee reports mm-hmm. to influence uh, litigation later on. So it was a particular right. way of sort of hiding something in there to influence a case that's not the law of the United States. And so the, the leading proponent of textualism as a means of interpreting federal statutes was Justice Scalia. And when he started really the 1980s, started in the 70s, but really the 1980s and went on to the, uh, the Court of Appeals in the 1990s and 2000s on the Supreme Court, he refused to look at legislative history. And he said, it's illegitimate. It's not the law. I'm not going to look, look at it. A majority of the Supreme Court doesn't agree with that methodology, hmm. but Scalia almost single-handedly changed how courts look at statutes now. Everyone starts with a text now. I mean, it, it's really an amazing, hmm. you grab any statutory interpretation case from the 60s compared to today, it's night and day where even the most lefty judges start with the text. They might disregard it, but they at least, the analysis begins there. And, and, and so that, and I think that's a much, 
fairer and more predictable way to decide cases. One of the things you want in a nation of laws is is predictable outcomes. Right. And you know, if you're a private citizen, you're trying to determine what's the law say, the easiest way to do it is go look at the text of the law and if it's clear, that's if you know that's going to be the answer, you can behave accordingly. If a judge might follow the language, might not, might set it aside if he or she disagrees, that's much harder to predict when you don't know what judge is going to be deciding some case in the future. And and so that's that's textualism. In our remaining few seconds here, speaking of predictable outcomes, do you have any predictions for what will go on during the hearings tomorrow or is it anybody's guess? So tomorrow we're going to have another round of, here, of questions. It'll be shorter tomorrow. It's only 20 minutes. So instead of 30 minute rounds, so the day presumably will end several hours earlier, which will be good. Um, I, th- I think the Dems have run out of steam. I, I think they've lost, um, lost a lot of their energy. I will say, by the way, Michael, I've got to credit you. One of the better moments in, in the hearing was when my colleague, John Cornyn, asked uh, Judge Barrett, said, you know, what notes do you have in front of you? And, and she, hadn't, she didn't have any uh, binders. She had nothing she was reading from. And she just held up a, a, a blank notepad. And, and I will say I'm, I'm impressed, uh, <laughs> Michael, that, 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 uh, that she held up what was apparently a page from your book. Uh, it was entirely <laughs> blank, and that's what she was relying on. And, and let you know, me ask Senator, you something, Michael. H- how do I write a book on the U.S. friggin' Supreme Court and she reads from your book and not my book at the hearing? <laughs> you know, uh, Senator, you've shared so much of your wisdom with me. <laughs> at, at some point, I'm more than happy to brief you on my book. I'm, I'm really honored. Uh, you've, you've played, I think, a more direct role in the history of this Supreme Court nomination pro- or and confirmation process. I am pleased that I could play a modest role as a Judge Barrett raised what was clearly a page from my blank book. We will look forward to tomorrow. By the way, on a reprint, you you, you might want that image on the cover of your book now for holding up the the, the, the blank <laughs> page. At, at a minimum, that's got to be like your online ad for the book. I know. I wonder, does it count as a blurb if she didn't say anything? I don't Perhaps. Perhaps we'll add it to the next edition. <laughs> uh, Senator, best of luck tomorrow at the hearings. Until then, I'm Michael Knowles. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. This episode of Verdict with Ted Cruz is being brought to you by Jobs, Freedom, and Security PAC, a political action committee dedicated to supporting conservative causes, organizations, and candidates across the country. In 2022, Jobs, Freedom, and Security PAC plans to donate to conservative candidates running for Congress and help the Republican Party across the nation. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hollywood is under siege from an external force. The same Hollywood that sold the American dream is now making nightmares a reality. Many major films make choices to appease the Chinese Communist Party to be distributed in China. 
Join Tiffany Meyer, an investigative reporter in Hollywood Takeover, brought to you by the Epic Times, where she reveals how the CCP exerts control over some major studios. Don't miss the most important documentary about Hollywood yet. For a limited time, watch the first 10 minutes for free at HollywoodTakeover.com slash Ben. HollywoodTakeover.com slash Ben. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash Ben Ferguson here, and if you're an accredited investor, U.S. oil and gas should be a part of your investment portfolio. And I want you to visit LabradorEnergy.com. Beyond the possibility to invest in a sector that historically delivers sound returns, when you invest with Labrador Energy, you may be able to structure your investments to offset active or passive income. According to many sources, U.S. oil and gas drilling remains one of the best tax-advantaged income investments available. Visit Labrador Energy. You may be able to reduce your tax liability while investing in a sector that historically delivers sound returns. Learn more now at LabradorEnergy.com today. Offer for accredited investors only. Past performance is no indication of future results. Investing involves risk. Consult your legal, tax, and financial advisors and read the prospectus before making any investment decisions. Visit LabradorEnergy.com for the prospectus and more information.